Hi, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Welcome back to the Medicus Podcast. It's Nate here. You might already be aware that most of us on the Medicus team are currently finishing up our second year of medical school. And as I record this intro, we're on the eve of our dedicated study period for step one. During those six weeks, we're putting episode production on hold while we study full-time for the exam. Luckily, though, we've managed to build up a backlog of finished episodes and will hopefully continue to release an episode each Friday. So with that in mind, today's show is going to be a little bit different from anything you've seen from us before. You may have heard of an organization called Physicians for Human Rights. It's an international organization based in New York that advocates for human rights issues all around the world, but we have a local chapter here at the medical school. A few months ago, Abdullah, who's the local chapter president, invited a unique speaker, Amul Qasir, to come and talk about the Syrian refugee crisis and Islamophobia. We at the Medicus team really liked the talk, so we decided to share the live recorded audio here on the podcast. But before we played our audio, I wanted to share some of the conversation that I had with Abdullah, who's the local chapter president, about the Physicians for Human Rights organization. Why should physicians advocate for human rights issues? I think that's a great question. I think the thing is about that is everybody should advocate for human rights issues. And I do understand that there are different occupations out there. Some are really dedicated for that cause, defending human rights. But I don't think you need to have a certain occupation in order to do so. I think physicians are sometimes being told to just, excuse my language, but just shut up and practice medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you know Dr. Mads Gilbert, he was interviewed by BBC News after he went down to Gaza Strip during the assault in Gaza. He was being bombed, so he left Norway and he went down to Gaza so he can work there for free. And so the, I, I noticed that the interviewer asked him, why don't you just practice medicine? Why do you have to get involved in these things? Like, leave the yeah. politics, leave the human rights for those who work for those issues. And he just, he, he blatantly said it, like, just because you're a physician doesn't mean you just have to shut up and practice medicine. That kind of affected me. That had an impact on me. And it's true. I think you're human, so you're involved with human rights. That's the bottom line. So I do think that regardless whether you're a physician or not, you should advocate for basic human rights. Sure. And I mean, I assume that has something to do with the reason that you decided to, you know, start this local chapter of Physicians for Human Rights here at the medical school. So could you tell us like what that group does? I mean, maybe even on a national level versus like here, like our local chapter of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, I'm more aware of what's going on locally. But in terms of the national, on a national level, Physicians for Human Rights are very much involved in global work. I learned this from following up on the Syrian crisis, the refugee crisis. They're very involved in helping out with that. If you go to their website, phr.org, you can see the projects that they're involved in. They document human rights violations, empower local leaders, and advocate for various issues all around the globe. So now, I want to cut to the live audio from Amal Qasir's talk. Amal is a young spoken word artist and a practicing Muslim who has dedicated a lot of time to talking about the political unrest and refugee crisis in Syria. She was born in Denver, Colorado to her mother, who is of white European descent, and her father, who is from Syria. She recently gave a talk called The Muslim on the Airplane at a TEDx conference in Denver, Colorado. She begins her talk today with a poem in Arabic. بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني ليفقوا قولي Hi everybody, I'm a liberal arts major. It's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> I gotta admit, I'm a little intimidated by the uh, level of like prestige and discipline in this room. So it's it's really quite a quite an honor to be with you all today. Um, my role tonight is to just give you my story uh, as a Syrian-American Muslim woman and 
I'll start off with a poem about my bloodline. Making sure this is working, but I got a loud voice. So, as mentioned, my mom was from Iowa. You know, blonde-haired, green-eyed, born with the cornfields in her. And my daddy's from Syria. And he came to the United States in the early 80s. And, you know, same old American dream story where you start off mopping the floors at a Chinese restaurant for minimum wage. And now he owns an empire of businesses in Denver, Colorado. Arabic food, actually. But this is an ode to the bloodline of the women who created me. My body is made of two types of blood, German and Syrian. Rhine River and Nehr al-Furat, I am split tongue. Sald, bald, ein rein on one side, makschnell on the other. My mama fed me meatloaf with a side of fatouche. She'd wrap peanut butter and jelly bisage. Some days it was salt and pepper. Others it was cardamom, caraway, cumin, and coriander. My world was the most colorful spice rack. Before bed, my mama would sing us nursery rhymes and then recite us verses from the Quran. She'd tell us stories of the founding fathers of the United States and then those of the companions of Muhammad sallallahu And this woman with an entirely different alphabet to her tongue used to share her secrets across the ocean with my Arab grandmother. Women with different recipes in their blood, but the same libraries on their fingertips. But my mama had hair colored like corn. Green eyes, the softest tongue, couldn't pronounce the asabi that was my father's language. And Tete didn't know a single European recipe. Her plump fingers perfected grape leaves, Arab chested and hazel eyed. Fourteen children made her an expert in motherhood. When Mama and Tete spoke, they'd use the braille of their palms to ask our foreheads if we were sick. They could tell how much we ate just by looking at us. And these women with entirely different recipes in their blood had the same libraries on their fingertips. You see, I'm something like Pangea. Bones of Damascus steel sized to a German skeleton. I got the skin of the Rocky Mountain snow. Lisani ma bihtaj warning before switching from one lugha to another. My tongue can go from Colorado weather to Setba sunsets to Frankfurt after rainfall. When I was born, I didn't have no national anthem to my lips. I didn't know the words to Tahiyat al-Alam or the star-spangled banner. The only language that I spoke was whatever was in the holy scripture hands of my mother. And I swear to you, seven years after my birth, first time I went to Syria, whatever library was in my grandma's hands, it's like I was born reading it. See, I'm like rivers, split tongue. Sald, dald, ein rein on one side, makschnell on the other. Hey! <laughs> It's really an incredible experience to be at this intersection because the reality is, no matter what, I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. So there really ain't no place to deport me at the end of the day. Ha ha ha, you can laugh. Ha ha ha. Um, but it's a fascinating experience because when you know where you're from, and the thing is everyone's from somewhere and everyone's from more than one place, You know, we tend to forget that when we sort of idealize what, what certain things look like, like what American looks like or what Arab looks like, and we forget our roots, right? But when we know who we are, there's an inevitable thing that happens to the, to the human experience. Now, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Muslim woman here in the United States. You know, I've, I led the protest in, in Denver International Airport against the Trump ban, the Muslim ban, ha. And, you know, I have my experiences, you know, I get called raghead, I get rape threats, I get all that, all that fun stuff, you know? But the truth is, as challenging as that might be, my father's bloodline is, is from a place that has experienced a level of tragedy and destruction 
that I had to redefine what happiness, what sadness, what oppression, what trauma means to me. You see, the more you know about where you're from and the tragedies you have experienced, the more expansive your understanding of the human elements are. On April 4th, 2017, uh, my family and I, we were, we were staying in this rental house because about seven months prior, we had a house fire, right? And a crazy, spontaneous combustion type thing, you know? We were getting our floors redone and, and everything we owned was in one room right by the front door, everything. You know, they were ripping out the, the rugs and they were, they were staining the wood floors and, and it was going to be beautiful. It was going to be a masterpiece. And there was a bucket of rags right next to the front door. No one was home. My brother was taking a nap maybe 45 minutes earlier. And all of a sudden, our, our neighbor gives my brother a call, which he ignores, and he's like, yo, dude, you guys need to come back home. Your house is on fire. <laughs> and we all, all of us are in different places. One week before this, my dad, he remarried. And his wife had the baby two months early. And the baby was living in an incubator. He was born at one pound. But he didn't need any, any machinery to help him breathe, right? But... Had my father and his wife not been at that hospital with that baby who was born one week prior, they would have been at home. Now, when the fire started, the bucket of rags spontaneously combusted. And when you, when you walked inside and looked at the wall, we had these high ceilings. And my dad's door was like right next to, next to where the black stain. It looked like a monster or something, you know? And the, the doorknobs were all boiling. And every single piece of furniture that we owned in that room was completely burned. And the fire had actually melted through the bucket and fallen into the basement. So this had no mercy, right? When we got there, you know, the firemen had to, like, saw open the garage. Every single window was busted. And, and if anyone was in the house, they would have died, there was no way to get out. The, the points of exit were like intoxicated with the smoke. The next day, we got a, a message from my aunt, and I'm going to translate this for you. It was crazy. You know, at this point, everybody knew what happened to our house, and, and my aunt, her name is Melak, which means angel in Arabic. She was in Syria. And I'm, I'm translating you this, the way her tone of voice was in everything, okay? Salamu alaikum, mama. You know, peace be upon you, mom. I hope you're doing well. I just want to let you know that something happened. We're all okay. A bomb hit, and we have no walls. I don't want to leave because the children have school. And if we leave, they won't be able to keep going. And that was the message. So she like, you know, it's like covering your manners. Yo, mama, how you doing? I hope everything's good. What's up? By the way, our house got bombed, you know? And, and the night of the fire, I heard the word home insurance more time than I've ever heard any other word repeated over and over. Every other word those firemen used was home insurance. Get home insurance, yo. It's a very important lesson that we're going we're gonna to come back to later, right? But... In Syria, she, she, that's, that's not a concept. There's not, there's not home insurance. So my dad, you think for a second, he was like, oh, whatever, you'll be fine. You should see what happened to our house. Nah, dude. My dad's American dream burned to the ground. But his sister's house got bombed. Our insurance covered everything we needed. We got to go to the store the next day. I mean, socks, underwear, whatever you could possibly need. They, they took care of all of it, right? It puts things into perspective. So for like almost a year and a half, two years, we were moving from house to house, waiting for everything to get rebuilt to go back home. 
So back to April 4th, 2017. We're living in this house that was owned by a former baseball player from the Colorado Rockies. And my dad wakes us up for the early morning prayer, Salat al-Fajr. You pray it before the sun has fully risen. And usually when my dad gets news from back home, he's frazzled, he's angry. Oh, they bombed this place today. They bombed this hospital. This journalist was killed. This morning, my big brown Arab father, who CNN will flash up if anything happened, he was nervous like a little baby. My sister's house got bombed this morning. This wasn't like what happened to my Aunt Melak the day after our house fire. We didn't really have any, any updates at this point. So we're praying. And I remember my dad was in sujood. Sujood, that, that's where you have those special conversations. That's where you're like, yo, I need, I need a hook get it hooked up for the step one exam that's coming up, you know? That's where, <laughs> that's where you talk about divorce or healing your family from, from cancer or whatever it is. That's, that's where the private conversations are had. And we were on the ground for kind of a long time. And afterwards, we're sitting on the floor. Has anybody ever heard of the messaging app, WhatsApp? You can take my word for it. Every ethnic person and their mother has this app. You can quote me. It's a fact. Right? We're sitting there on the floor, and here's the thing. We thought that the person messaging us was my cousin. It was her phone. But it turns out they got the phone from underneath the rubble, and someone was basically trying to let the family group know what was going on. So we're sitting there thinking the whole time, this is my cousin, Dania. The first body they pulled out was my father's sister, Basima and her name means to smile. And there's a moment, this was strange, you know, I'm a, I'm a poet, so we have to, to really hyper-interpret everything and try to find meaning where there might not be any, but they said that they pulled her out alive, and so for like 15 seconds, my dad's sitting there saying, Alhamdulillah, like, praise God, like my sister's okay, my baby sister's okay, and the next message was, which means Basima's been martyred. And there's a moment where you sit there and you, you have to comprehend this human reality that's taking place right now. We're sitting in our living room somewhere in Denver, Colorado, 3,000 miles away from Syria, and all we know is that there's a corpse. And the messages just kept coming. Nisreen, Salam. By the end of the day, we lost 11 members of our family in one bombing. And I am including the two unborn babies inside of the bellies of their pregnant mothers. Now the last person to die, Dania. She's the one whose cell phone we were getting these messages from, right? And Man, y'all ever seen those National Geographic documentaries where there is a zebra, the zebra's running, and there's a big-ass lion right behind him, and this, this lion is going after the zebra, and the zebra has no chance of getting away, but the zebra's gonna try to get away. The zebra's gonna struggle even when the lion has its jaws clenched on the zebra's body and there's no hope left. The zebra will literally try to fight to live until it's dead. That's the miracle of nature. You never just give yourself up to the wild, right? Even if you have no chance. Well, Dania, she was the only one who made it out of the bombing. And dude, like... She actually tried to unbury herself. She actually tried to climb out. And they said that there was like a huge stone, like a huge concrete brick that fell and crushed her hand. And it really messed her up and she was stuck. But when they pulled her out, she was alive. Now she wasn't, she wasn't responsive, but she was alive. And dude, I swear to God, I am not kidding you. We thought the death toll was at 10, right? And that day, people came to the mosque. They, they, they gave their condolences and everything. And me and my brother are sitting at our, at our lookout spot in Denver, Colorado, 
realizing like, damn, it's been a quite a day today, huh? And I swear to God, I said, dude, think about how difficult this is going to be when Daniel wakes up. Her mom, her sisters, her grandmother, her nieces and nephews, everybody has been taken away from her. Wallahi, my dad calls the next second after I said that and says she just died in her hospital bed. When you are from Syria, you have to redefine what happiness and sadness is. That girl was not going to have the, the best life she deserved alive. There's a concept in the Islamic tradition is that heaven's under your mother's feet. And dude, her mama was taken away from her. And this girl, man, this girl was like 24 years old and took it upon herself in the middle of a war zone to be the principal of a school that was underground. All the main schools were bombed. So they had to basically gather all of the little kids and, and, and makeshift schools. You all heard of makeshift hospitals. It's the same concept. This 24-year-old girl is overseeing. She is the leadership of this. She also took it upon herself to update the Facebook obituary page of the region. So anytime someone would die, the thing is, if you don't get that WhatsApp messages, you don't know if your family's alive or dead. So she was the one responsible for updating the obituaries. She literally spent her entire life dedicating herself to just making the war experience just a, a little more manageable. At least you'll know if your brother was killed, at least. At least she'll get an education, at least. It's good that she died. I know it's, it's crazy to say. And, and she fought to live, she fought to live. She was like the zebra, right? In the mouth of the war that is the lion. And she fought to live and, and, and she got to go be with her mama. Maybe that's fairy dust thinking, but damn, that's all you got in a war zone, right? I'm going to recite you a poem about my family's farm. Now I'll tell you, things have gotten a lot worse in Syria since, since like last month. It's been kind of crazy. Um, but there was a testimony by some doctors in eastern Ghouta. And these doctors, oof. I mean, in a matter of two weeks, they said 10 medical facilities got bombed. There's no saline. There's nothing for dialysis there. There no, are no vaccinations against hepatitis B. And these guys are exposed to so much blood. And they're under so much pressure. And one of the doctors, her name is Anne Sparrow, she was talking about how we're watching these people get killed on a daily basis. The most aggressive bombing campaign was, was the week of February 22nd, since the start of the revolution. I mean, there's one video, 500 bombs are being launched in a matter of like 30 seconds, dude. It's crazy to see. And she's saying that the people are still mourning their dead. She was like, this is such an act of defiance. They are experiencing loss every day and they are still mourning their dead because they will not accept death as life. They will mourn and they will be saddened. It doesn't matter how many family members were killed. They will mourn their dead. And that's human dignity right there. It's profound, dude. So this poem, it's about the farmers. Everyone's left the area, unfortunately, but you know, you can plug in the word Mexico or, or Palestine or Afghanistan or Venezuela or, or whatever you want. You can just plug in a different country for it because the reality is the story of the farmer is gonna be the same all over. building up the intensity, so bear with me.
My grandmother always had dinner on the table. Even when the tyrant put checkpoints outside her door, her defiance made mealtimes a battle her family would always win. As long as she could keep chopping, she would get that tabbouleh to the table fresh. Because families sit together to eat. They don't await the funeral prayer. So she would send my cousins down the stairs to get her parsley, and they ate like kings amidst a war zone. Recipes the tyrant has never tasted. My grandmother knows Syria better than anyone. It is the arthritis living in her knees. She had a farm whose dust she knew by name. She knew the day the peaches would be ripe and how sour a lemon was based on the rain. My grandmother spoke the language of the land that fed her. She housed families on her farm that would help till the soil. Their hands colored with dirt and her hands bruised from hollowing out all that zucchini. And they built Syria with a prayer and a meal, blistered hands and enough food to feed the neighbors. You see the falah, the farmer is the one who knows his country best. It is him to take the first bullets and it is him to stay behind. He knows what Syria needs when she is thirsty knows what she will do to his body when he is buried. A farmer knows what his grave will smell like. And when the war started, even the rivers ran away. For the hands of a militant are not like the hands of a farmer. Bullet and earth cannot speak to each other and blood will never, ever make the crops grow. And so the country stopped growing, spent her time counting bodies, and it's, it's hard to trust the footsteps when everyone is running, when the bombs disguise themselves as clouds, when militants talk dirty about a country whose parsley they have never even tasted. Only a farmer will convince this soil to grow again. He is water in time of drought. His street dialect is the language this dirt prays in. And when he's cooking for all those starving people, he's using my grandmother's recipes. They cut down every single tree in my grandmother's farm. They rip the pomegranate from the earth and the lemons don't grow there anymore. And the Syrian people wonder, does the tyrant not remember who fed him? My grandma swears she's going to write down every single recipe when this war is over because she knows what Syria needs. We all know what all our communities need. We will rebuild them with a prayer and a meal and blistered hands and enough food to feed each and every one of the neighbors. And the tyrants... And the militants and the terrorists and the rapists and warlords, well, just like the rest of us, they're going to learn their graves. They're going to feel the weight of the entire country on their chests. And when the soil asks them, did you not spill blood in my name? Then why do you fear me so? Let the earth give your body back to me. And Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, is not going to know how to respond. He doesn't speak the language of his country. He will struggle against the dirt that fed him. Here's a side story. Um... So everyone's left that region now, but the farm was taken back by my cousins and, and, and the locals who were, who were responsible for protecting the region. And they turned that farm 
into a young boy's orphanage. Now, here's the thing. Eh, you know, the whole, like, religion is the cause for terrorists. That's been obliterated time and time again by every major psychologist, sociologist out there, right? It's the easy way out, though. You want to know the recipe for terrorism? You destroy a child's entire institutions, his education, his, his home, his family. You make him an orphan, and then you don't teach him how to read. And then someone with guns comes up to him and says, yo, I'll give you some bread if you take the gun. That's how it works, right? You think kids are just born? Being, without war, they have no religion. So what did these guys do? What did my cousins do? They taught these boys to plant seeds. And they regrew the tomatoes and the lettuce. And these, these boys who had no mothers, the Mother Earth became their mother. You know, I have this philosophy that, that if you grow up without parents, the Earth will teach you everything a parent should teach you. They will teach you loss. They will teach you patience. They're going to teach you drought and frostbite, right? The only way to protect these young people is to preserve their education. You want to know when the University of Aleppo was bombed? So strategic. And this, this is very common, actually, if you look at war zones. When they bomb universities and schools, who can take a wild guess? When did they bomb the university? I'm not asking for a date, but what was going on? It was the first day of exams. Strategic. There's a reason why farms and schools are targeted first. Because when you displace the population's food supply and intellectual supply, well, War is an incredibly, incredibly profitable business. I have a poem. And you know, usually I'm not performing in front of doctors, so it makes me very insecure. So if anything's wrong, just shush my ego, you know? <laughs> I did my research, man. Wikipedia is not the most unreliable thing. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> so... I don't know, I'll read it and then tell you the story. One of the miracles of birth is the divine autonomy during pregnancy, granted to a mother and a child through the placenta barrier. The two can only be so close. The bloodlines are prohibited from mixing even in the womb. This child was inside of her for nine months a peaceful revolution within. Nourished by her Quranic songs and farmland fruits, pregnancy so intimate, but even in the womb, the two could only be so close. Bloodlines are prohibited from mixing. It was breakfast and the child was 13. There was a peaceful revolution outside the farm gates, but they had nothing to do with it. She was nourished by her mother's bismillah and farm-picked tomatoes, her mother's eyes like umbilical cords, the space between them like placenta and forced separation, and no matter how near they are to each other, they could only be so close. It took 13 years and nine months for this child and her mother to get closer than even miracle had intended. When the first bullet struck, the daughter's skull split like an eggshell, tomato blood just like her mother's, and the mother barely had a moment to, to appreciate the intimacy of their blood. When the sniper struck a second time, the mother reciprocated her daughter's caress, and their blood hugged, spilled into each other's on the tabletop, mother and daughter closer than they had ever been. Breakfast that day became mightier than birth. The sniper enforced an almost divine union. The miracle of life defied, not even in the womb had they been so close. And the sniper played God, mixing blood that even in the womb was prohibited from mixing. So my dad's second cousin, 
She was 13 years old. And, uh, you know, the revolution wasn't always a war. It was just a bunch of people who were kind of angry and, you know, protesting. Lord knows we do that a lot here, right? And the thing is they were, they were targeting areas that were predominantly anti-government. Even if you weren't involved in the protests, you know, they, they detained a lot of different men. So my dad's 13-year-old second cousin was sniped in the back of her head on her, to her mother's lap, and her mother was sniped in the face. The farm was then raided by, by security forces, and they kidnapped the father and the son, and we haven't really heard of them from them since. Those were the first casualties. But by far, I think it's, it's safe to say that as harsh as the bombings and snipers and bloodshed were, the thing that was really challenging were when the, the children would starve to death because of the sieges. Now, when, when they impose a siege around a city, now medical facilities, that's where you're going to hear most of the testimonies of the doctor. I mean, they, they produced a, rep a report, Doctors Without Borders, and it was a blank statement. And they were just, they, they didn't even show up. I can't remember what the conference was called, but it was an international conference for, for doctors for human rights, something like that. And they didn't even show up because of the number of medical facilities that had been bombed in Syria. And they were so damn desperate. So my, my cousin, his name is Noor, and his name means, it means light. And uh, the way he died... I don't even know if I can find the poem. But the way he died was uh, he needed one shot of insulin. He'd fallen into a diabetic coma, and unfortunately, medicine was prohibited from entering these regions. There was a guy named Menfush. This guy became a millionaire off of this siege because he would like sell people eggs and salt and bread and all that stuff, but up the taxes super, super high, right? But no matter what, Medical and construction material, medicines, things like that were, were prohibited from entering. Um, so Noor died in his mom's lap. He was 25. He had a baby and a pregnant wife. And, you know, he, he got to slip out of life a little bit. You know, it was like falling asleep. And my grandfather, dude, this guy lived in America for like 10 years, right? Barely learned a word of English, but he watched every single cowboy movie out there. Every single one. He was, he was all about John Wayne, dude. Oh, my Lord. And this guy could say cowboy, and he could quote these movies, but other than that, I guess language really had no use for him, right? He was such a G. And, you know... <laughs> This guy straight up bought like three goats and stuck them in the backyard. And my mom comes home one day and it's like, what, what the hell is going on here? What are these goats doing here? And, you know, the, my brothers and sisters named the goats. And, and they, were on the, they, were, they were on the table a little bit while later. But, you know, he was very Arab. And uh, when, he moved, <laughs> when he moved back to Syria, um, he was getting older. You know, his time was coming. You know, age just, just has a tendency to take us. It don't matter, you know. And, and here in the West, we have the, the luxury of extending people's lives because of, of, of medicine, right? Well, because of the siege, he didn't have what he needed to live slightly longer. And there was a bombing campaign taking place. I think this was like 2014. I don't, I don't remember. But no one was with him in the hospital room. I mean, he died alone because when the bombs were falling, my, my grandmother and, and all my aunts and, and the cousins, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't make it. You know, it was too dangerous. Ugh. And dude, his story, like, like again, he was such a G. Like, he was not going to go out except to be buried in his land whole. He was not. 
And the thing about barrel bombs, barrel bombs was like the weapon of choice for a while before Russia came in and they had their, their more advanced air artillery strikes, right? Barrel bombs are basically, as it sounds like, big barrels filled with glass and explosives and nails, you know, shrapnel. And, and the thing about a barrel bomb is it has to fall a certain way to explode. So it's hit or miss. Right, you can get very lucky or very unlucky. And when they fall, they're like wobbling. They're, they're, not, they're not like US drones, you know. They don't got that precision. They don't got that target. They're just wobbling about. You don't know exactly where it's gonna hit. So my, my grandfather was getting buried. And a group of men, they were carrying him to the burial ground. And a barrel bomb fell. And they said it was like four meters away. That's what, like, like 12 feet or so? It was just right over there. And it did not explode. Had it exploded, dude, it would have been a limb festival. It's a very gory way of describing it. But it would have, it, it, they all wouldn't have made it. Fell right over there, no explosion. My grandfather got buried in the ground that he always planned on dying in. It's profound, you know? <laughs> the first time I ever saw my father cry was the day he picked me up from the train station in Denver and he found out his father was dying. And here's the thing. When the war in Syria started, when the revolution started, not the war, this was before it was armed, the first establishment to, to sort of quell the spread of this revolutionary sentiment was what is called the Syrian Electronic Army. It sounds cute, right? It sounds like tough boys. But uh, it was a group of dudes who basically went into Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and checked out who was active. So you've got my dad's like super goofy Facebook profile picture on like regime wanted websites, you know? <laughs> it's crazy because you weren't allowed to spread this message. You know, that's the thing, because they, they put a military siege over Dara to prevent it from spreading. Because what happens when, when thoughts start to spread, people will catch on. That's the thing. I mean, come on. We're in the United States. Mass media was the most important part of the elections. Without the media, there are no elections. There's no public sentiment. There's no idea what to think and what to believe and... And, and when it came to these, these regions, like, my, my dad couldn't go back. He, he was going to get killed. His, his daughter, who talks about Syria and is viral, that probably doesn't help either. But, you know, we try to be very quiet about where we're from and who, who's there and who we're associated with. The feds know, so that's cool. That's all that matters. <laughs> Not even kidding, they know. <laughs> And they take dad out for steak dinners, you know? They were just like, so what's going on? How's your nephew? Um, but anyways, I remember my dad was sitting there and, you know, Arab fathers, you know, you, you got that stereotype of what Arab men are. And I think a lot of us, I don't think it matters if you're Arab, but that the idea of masculinity, of being a man, of not crying, of being strong, of being, being deep-voiced and rugged and, and, and not letting your family see moments of weakness. And I remember my dad was quiet, and I looked over, and I said, like, Papa, what's wrong? And, dude, my dad broke down into these tears, and he was sobbing like a boy. And I remember, like, my dad and I didn't have this relationship. You know what I mean? Like, he was a dude where we'd be watching Titanic, and of course, like, the worst possible scene, y'all know what I'm talking about, comes on, and he walks in, and that's, you know. And I, <laughs> y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Don't matter if you're Muslim or not. But um, I just reached over and just held my dad's hand, and, and, he, and he held my hand back. And it was weird. Because that was the moment I realized, like, like that's what a daughter's for, you know? Um, the dentist said he had never in his life seen someone grind their teeth down so deeply to their gums like my father had. And my dad, because he couldn't be there, 
he felt like he had to watch every bloody, gory, disgusting video that came out of Syria. Now here's the thing, y'all wanna know what's happening in Syria? YouTube is fine in English. Go to Google Translate, put it in Arabic. You're gonna see a whole side of YouTube you ain't never seen before. I remember the first video I watched was, God, dude, he was like seven years old maybe, maybe, maybe 10 or something, but this kid, y'all can Google it, he's sitting there on, on, in the middle of Syria, I don't know which part of the country he was in, but it was like he was dazed and did not really comprehend what was going on. His jaw was dangling off his face. And he was just sitting there kicking his legs on this gurney and just, just it, like it was so freaky because this kid's freaking jaw is bleeding off of his face. It had been completely, and he has no idea what's going on. Oh, that video was haunting. The kid ended up dying a few hours later. I imagine blood loss or something. I'm sure medical school students could figure it out, but I remember the other video that came out recently. My dad, he'll send them to us. Like my sisters like had to block him on WhatsApp for a while because they're like, dude, you, you can't send mothers this stuff. Oh, dude, this video of this little boy. Oh my God, he woke up blind. The airstrikes had taken his eyes. He woke up blind and he was freaking out. He was panicking. This little boy woke up and could not see. His eyes were shredded from the bombing. And the panic and the dad is standing there like trying to hold him and being like, Habibi, Habibi, my darling, it's okay, it's okay. And this boy is freaking losing his mind, dude. And like, what are you gonna say? Like, chill, kid. Like, no, this is war. This is an entirely, these kids were born into this war and, and still it comes as a shock. My dad watched every single one of those videos and it's just, it's so disturbing and it's, there's such little people have except for hope. And I know that sounds cheesy, right? That's not tangible, it's not empirical, it's not something you can measure, you can't prove it, you can't determine it. There's, there's, no, there's, there's no way to use hope for your advantage except to let you keep on going. The difference between hope and optimism. Optimism, you're counting on the outcome. The outcome's gonna be okay, whatever it is, it's gonna be fine. Hope is knowing damn well you can't count on the outcome, but you're gonna struggle like that damn zebra just to keep on going. You have no expectations for anything tangible. And it's, it's the reality is if you wanna get to know humanity, you gotta get to know the sick, dark, freaky parts. You gotta know the moment when a black mother gets the news that her little 17-year-old boy just been shot. You gotta, you gotta know those moments when, when the Latino mother who doesn't speak English, and, and, and you've got a man basically telling her your child is ours now. That moment, the moment when a kid wakes up, uh, wakes up blind, that's the moment where you're gonna find out what humanity is. It's not going to be the triumphant, whatever, bedazzled, marketed, and packaged versions that, that Hollywood spews out. It's the moment your dad dies from cancer while you're staring into his eyes, right? It's the moment that these, these things happen where you have no choice but to go on. You have no choice. My cousin... He, was a, he wasn't in the house when his mom and his sisters and his son and his grandma and everyone were killed. He's the one the feds know about. <laughs> he's, he's, he, he has a gun, you know? May Allah protect him. He's, he's been through a lot, and he's in Idlib right now. And if anyone knows what's happening in Syria, they know that Idlib's about to be destroyed. It's the last city 
It's the only place that's run by, by, by people with revolutionary sentiment. And, and the regime is already putting up their banners claiming victory, right? And my, my cousin, my dad calls him and asks him, like, what, what's, what do you want to do? You know what my, my cousin said, dude? This guy has literally walked in on soldiers gang-raping 10-year-olds. This guy has killed people. PTSD is something he will live with for the rest of his life. His mom was killed. Dude, he had a two-year-old son. His wife, who was pregnant, was killed in an airstrike like three months prior. His two-year-old son was all he had, and that baby died in that bombing too. This guy had seen the worst of the worst. And my dad asked him, like, what do you want to do? I just want to go back to school. Like, oh my gosh. Like, what a normal thing to want. What a normal thing to want. Like, after everything you've seen, after the bloodshed and the violence and, and the starvation, this guy's dad was detained. And when he was released, the guy knocked on the door. He'd lost, like, 100 pounds. He had cigarette burns all over. Nobody recognized him. They opened the door, and they're like, who are you? And he just collapsed into the house, dude. Like, like he's seen every, and he just wants to go back to school? Like, Damn. That, if that ain't human, I don't know what is. It's, it's crazy. I'm pretty sure I was here for poetry, but, you know, where do you think we get the poetry from? I know it sounds like a bunch of jumbled stories that I'm giving you, but if I were to define the moral of the story, it's the fact that these, these, these words that we, we build up, that we resurrect like they are walls. Words like war and, and politics and religion. Wars that are controversial. Words that, that make us unfriend our friends on Facebook when they disagree with us. These words that divide us. There are people behind them. Oh, I don't talk about religion. Yeah, well, 83% of the world practices one, so yeah, y'all might want to get involved in the conversation, you know? Don't mean we, 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 no one's trying to preach anything here, you know? No one's trying to sell their ideals to you, but damn, we forgot about the people behind these words. I don't like to be cheesy or cliche. I really don't, because for me, that stuff doesn't work. I rely on the kid with his jaw blown off to get some sort of an emotion. But the reality is, dude, for like five seconds, just be uncomfortable and hear someone out. It's, it's not that hard, dude. So what, you disagree, big freaking deal. Freaking president try to ban my people, yo. You're like, y'all can handle it, I assure you. I assure you. It's not a problem, dude, but you know, if, if, you, if you have any good in your heart, then you got to be a better human. That's the point. There's a verse by Brother Ali. Can you tell me what language do you laugh in? The human reaction is smiles and cries. What language are the tears when they're falling from your eyes? My cousin, he just wants to go back to school. When a mama loses a child, whether it's, whether it's from a bombing in Syria or whether it's from a high school shooting in Parkland, Florida, I swear to God, those tears, they, 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 they sound the exact same. August 21st, 2013, approximately 2 a.m. If anyone's ever seen any footage of the Middle East, they know the, the minarets that stand very tall, right? the houses of worships that, that Muslims will pray in. It's, it's our church equivalent. And they will often call to prayer during the five prayers, the, the one in the morning, at noon, afternoon, sundown, and when the sun is gone, five times a day. 2 a.m. on this day, all of a sudden, all of the mosques in this area set off announcements telling everybody to wake up and get to their roofs as fast as they could. This was when the regime used serine gas. 
and attacked a civilian area. Al-Mu'addamiyah, and I want to say Zabadani, but it was in Ghuta, where most of my stories I've told you tonight have been coming from. In a matter of hours, 1,500 people died, including at least 426 children. Y'all ever heard of that red line? Huh. It was just a jump rope Obama lent to the international community. Now, the moment that it changed for me was the moment I hosted a protest in Denver, Colorado. And a couple people from the poetry community showed up. My dad, my brothers, a couple friends. And there were maybe like six people there. And here's the thing, when, 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 you, when you're an activist, and I'm sure when you're a doctor, I bet you guys have these moments where you give it your everything and there is no return. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand why nobody came. Well, how old was I? This was 2013. I was like 18. And I couldn't understand why, like, where, where was everybody, dude? 1,500 people were just, they were just gassed to death in the middle of the night. 1,500 people, dude. We'd never seen anything like this. Last time was Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein bombing the Kurdish. Those were the weapons of mass destruction we went into Iraq for. And dude, they call it the bloodless massacre because you just see these babies just laying there with like, like foam at their mouths. And, and I, I couldn't understand why no one was here. And I had to reevaluate what my expectations were for the work I was doing. And dude, that was, there was a lot of meltdowns, a lot of depressions, you know, because before, all my pieces, all my poetry, it was, it was to stand up and say something, to speak out against the oppression, to speak against the dictator. It was that, that big tough girl stuff, right? But after this, I had nothing to write. What the hell was I going to say to the world? And I just, I had to figure out, like, how can you be human when you don't see humanity, right? I, I always hated that idea. I, I, what is it? I see humans, but no humanity. And so I tasked myself with trying to understand what humanity actually is. You know, and, and that you can't blame people for not showing up to protest. Dude, Lord knows I've, I've dipped out on, a, on plenty of them. That's not how we, that's not how we make Move. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you're going to need a march on Washington. Sometimes you're going to need the women's march. Yeah. But I do what I do now because of that reevaluation. I call myself a storytelling activist because of the fact that when it comes down to it, dude, you can be as eloquent and tough girl and have your pieces memorized as good as you want. It don't matter. I think the concept of empathy, that's what, that's what my conclusion was of this, this questioning, right? It's not about walking in someone's shoes. It's about literally ripping out your heart and sticking it in someone else's chest for a minute. And when I talk about these stories, y'all don't need to know the color of their skin. All you need to know is grief feels the same in everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, you can submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. 
No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.